Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome. Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. On today's episode, we talk to Eleanor Blaney, one of the founding partners of Sullivan, Briette, Spiros, and Blaney, an early leader in the world of independent RAAs that by 2003 had already grown to nearly a billion dollars of assets under management and was ultimately sold to Harris Private Bank. I was excited to have Eleanor join us and share her perspective of growing a successful financial advisory from not only for the success of SBSB itself, but frankly, also the challenges of doing so as a female financial advisor in a very male-dominated industry. So in this episode, you'll hear everything from how Eleanor cold-called advisor she found in a magazine to find her first job, how she pushed with an early, or got pushed by an early mentor to be willing to stand up and speak out and ultimately join Toastmasters to find confidence as a public speaker, as well as the details of how SBSB grew in large part by forming a tax-focused niche around working with tech company employees in the 1990s. And be certain to listen to the end where Eleanor shares some of her thoughts on what it takes to improve gender diversity and bring more women into financial planning, her advice to survive as a woman in a male-dominated industry, and in particular, her advice to younger, newer planners coming into financial planning today. So with that, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Eleanor Blaney. Welcome, Eleanor Blaney. Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, Michael. So we're we're here today to talk about some of the path that you took as a a financial advisor and a business owner. So you were involved in a in a firm for 20 years that got built that ultimately got sold. You're now working in a, a capacity with the CFP board. And so I want to talk about all of that, the building and the growth of an advisory firm and and the transition out of it to another role within the profession. But Take us back to the beginning of how you get started. Like, how did you actually find your way into this thing called, well, I was going to say called financial planning, but I guess I don't even know if we talked about it as financial planning then. We talked about as financial services. So what what was your start to this financial advisor, financial services space? Well, in fact, when I came into the profession, I think financial planning in and of itself was in its adolescence. So it's still didn't quite know what it wanted to be when it grew up, nor did I. I was an English major. I spent my college years, you know, reading Shakespeare and James Joyce and went from college to University of Cambridge, where I did a lot more (laughs) in English literature. But circumstances and the facts of life, I was a young wife and a mother. Um, I had to get practical because my husband was as impractical as I was and very involved in teaching literature. So I decided to go to business school. He was uh, teaching at the University of Chicago. I could get an MBA at half price. That sounded like a deal to me. And I had always, you know, in between all the French and English lit courses, I had taken a lot of economics and I really enjoyed it. So I went to business school and I got out of business school, came to Washington, was hired as a management consultant, as business school grads often are. And I was working with a government primarily. So this was a a true beltway bandit type of consulting firm that basically helped 
analyze economic impact of regulations and write the regulations and the, you know, public impact statements and all that. So we were primarily working with the EPA. It was a great job. I had a lot of upward mobility, interesting people, interesting projects, but I, I, I hated and it. And when was this? <laughs> this was back in the 80s. Okay. Okay. So this is Reagan era... I guess actually a, a good amount of deregulation going on, but figuring out what the impact is of all these regulatory shifts. Absolutely. And the, the Reagan part is very pertinent because um, under Reagan, a lot of the work of government it was outsourced to the private sector. So hence the, the Beltway bandits. They all popped up because they were doing all the work of the regulatory agencies. So it was a good job and I was, you know, on track to move into project manager and there from there and so forth. The, there was one small problem and that is I simply hated it because <laughs> just you hated the the work of doing it, the yes. management consulting thing. What I hated was that we were working, you know, great people, but I'm working for an agency and you can't make eye contact with an agency. In other words, there was no personal dimension. And we would write reports and they would be circulated to all three branches of the government and you'd get comments and the report would come back and you would rewrite it. And there was just this endless churning of ideas and paperwork that I felt really never kind of got anywhere. And I really, but I liked the idea of advising, you know, giving advice and I and I had always been interested in investments and markets and started to read Money Magazine, of all things. And I still do, by the way. I've got to say, maybe it's uh, soft media or not exactly financial porn, but pretty easy stuff. But I've always learned something from Money Magazine. And I heard about this profession. <laughs> or heard so you learned about financial planning from Money Magazine? Well, I started to hear more about, you know, mutual funds and choosing them. And then actually, I learned more about financial planning in the Washingtonian because they did a feature, as they have probably done for every year since. But back then, they talked about this fledgling profession and they named all the financial planners in the Washington area. So I decided to go and interview every single, not every single one of them, but I probably interviewed about, there were maybe... Oh, 15 listed, and I interviewed easily 10 or 12 of them because I wanted to know what they did. It sounded intriguing. I loved the idea of working with individuals and families and loved the idea of advising on personal finance, and that's how I talked to everybody I could. So how do you approach people? Like You just... Well, I was going to say, you don't send them an email because we're in the mid-19s. Yeah, so right. like, we didn't have... <laughs> you, give a, you give a cold phone call and get someone's secretary and say, I'd like to schedule a meeting with so-and-so to learn more about his business? <laughs> I did. <laughs> the original cold call was not about, you know, selling insurance or mutual funds. It was, can I come and talk to you? <laughs> You cold called financial advisors to get to talk to them. So I think I did have a cover letter, but actually I found that they were very receptive. I mean, most of them gave me an interview. I did go to the FPA meeting. Somehow I discovered that there was a, you know, membership organization and, and went there and I, guess and I will never. Back then it was, was that an IAFP chapter or an ICFP chapter? Oh, yes. 
It was an IAFP chapter. Okay. Yes. So for those who aren't familiar, IAFP was one of the two predecessor organizations to the current FPA. And I guess hopefully not mischaracterizing was kind of had a little bit more of the roots of being the a little bit more of the sales and product side of the membership association groups at the time. Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. So you went to an IAFP meeting. I went to an IAFP meeting. I met an icon of our industry who's no longer with us, Lynn Hopewell, and I introduced myself to him, and I believe he had a Harvard MBA. I think he had his MBA from Harvard. I believe so. He did, and I think I think Glenn Cott did too. That was their connection. Right. And so I went up and introduced myself, and I said, and I have an MBA from the University of Chicago, and I'm interested in this profession. And he looked at me, and as you know, Michael, I'm not a big person. I'm kind of small. (laughs) And I felt much smaller because he looked down at me, and he was not a tall man, but he was a big man. And he looked down at me, and he said, you MBAs are all alike. You just want to get in this profession and make a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so you were in the MBA bucket at this point. I was in the MBA bucket, but I will tell you, I, I mean, I was nonplussed really, but I will tell you, I took his advice and I went back and rewrote my letters. I remember recrafting my letters and making it clear to everybody that I didn't expect to come in and get paid a big bundle. I wanted to learn the profession. I would apprentice whatever, but in other words, I eliminated that objection before they could even voice it because of what I learned from Lynn Hopewell. So I'm curious, as you were doing some of these interviews, reach, you know, reaching out to advisors that got profiled in, in the Washingtonian and going to an early IAFP meeting, so were all of the advisors you were talking to men at that point? No, no, they were not. Now, they were primarily, but there were two advisors that I spoke to who are still well-known, well-regarded, have been leaders in the profession. I think in Washington, we really, we have quite an incubator for talent here. I spoke to Alex Armstrong, and I spoke to Patty Houlihan. Both of whom are still practicing here in the D.C. area. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And... Well, I'll tell you a couple funny stories along the way because Patty, I'm he, she was she had a, a male partner and working in Rockville, and I went and talked to her, and I really liked both of them a lot. Felt that I could learn. Oh, another person I spoke to was Mary Malguar as well. So interestingly, I did get some exposure to women right off the bat, and I I think at that time it never occurred to me that this wasn't a profession for women. I'll talk more about that. Well, and and, it, and it's astounding to me that the the three women you found all have still, as of today, very well-known practices here in the D.C. area that were very successful business owners. I guess it just an interesting thing to me that you found and connected with all of them when everybody was still fairly early on in building those practices that are much larger today. Absolutely. But what I learned from the three of them was the advice side of the business. Now, you know, that that was, and that was what attracted me. I remember going on a first interview for a job. You know, I spent a lot of time getting the informational interviews. And then I was invited by a, I can't even remember their name, 
So I was invited to come and talk to them about employment. And they, we had a great talk. We were, you know, this was a house on fire. We were doing great. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, I was excited that I would even be considered. And they said, oh, we are really interested in you. And we would like you to come back for a second interview. And being so new to this whole thing, I was like, wow, that's great. And then they said to me, when you come back for your interview, please bring us a list of everyone you know <laughs> who makes over at that time was $100,000 a year or has net worth of, I forget, $500,000, million, I forget. And I looked at them and I said, you've got to be kidding. I mean, the awkward thing is there are firms that still do that today. <laughs> they still do that. They st- And I said... There is no way on earth that I'm bringing you the names of my colleagues at my consulting firm or friends. I mean, I, you know, back when we didn't even have privacy laws, I was just still so offended by this request. And yes, absolutely. I hear it go on today. So it was really that that said, no, I'm not, I do not want to get into, uh, you know, product peddlers. I was really interested in the financial planning. So I guess first message out there for anyone who's maybe a a younger or newer advisor coming into the industry or looking at coming into the industry, when you go to apply for a financial advising job and they say, you make the list of your friends and family who have money, no is an acceptable answer that will not end your career before it begins. There are other paths. Actually, yes, it will. It will put you on a, a far more productive and uh, live with yourself road. But no, that was absolutely the case. Absolutely the case. So you're looking around for options and first jobs. So did you land directly with Greg and Jim and Pete out of the gate? No, I didn't. Okay. And let me, I just want to back up one thing that you were giving advice to people and looking for, you know, how to start jobs. And one thing I have come across lately in advising young women who are trying to find jobs is a lot of times they may Google financial planning. And I really recommend if they're not looking for sales and broker type environment, and they may be, but if they're not, to Google wealth management, because I find that wealth management is probably more likely to take you to the realm of the investment advisory and advisory types of practices as opposed to product. That's interesting. So I guess that's sort of the statement today that I guess, unfortunately, that label financial planning has been co-opted in so many different directions that we we need to evolve to different titles and labels to really clarify who's doing what today. That's just one tip I have because I had one young woman look under financial planning and she could find nothing but, you know, a, a sales associate. So you went through all this cold calling for jobs and and IAFP meetings and getting stared down by Lynn Hopewell. So how did you actually find the the first job or your first foot in the door? Well, I bounced around a little bit because I I talked to can we name names? Oh, absolutely. Yes, we have been. Okay, so I talked to Dennis Gertz and Paul Urachek and they were very interested in me, but I was a young man, got the position, and I did not. 
So I ended up working for a firm in Bethesda for Susan Fulton, which is another name in the industry. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> FBB is still in practice today. Yes, it is. <laughs> you can see I kind of really walked around this town for a while. <laughs> yeah, you. I guess you, you have an amazing ability to pick sustainable firms. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> Well, I guess so. But in any event, I one thing led to another. I stayed with Fulton for less than a year. And Paul Juracek actually introduced me to Greg Sullivan, who was with Durand Associates. Now, that was a pure brokerage with a lot of sales that had this one small department that was run by Greg for financial planning. Okay. So, kind of back in the day when either financial planning was a product to be sold, right? So, the broker out in the field was like, hey, I'll, I'll sell you a limited partnership or an insurance policy or a financial plan and my department will make it or using plans basically as the prelude to sell those yes. products. I often say that financial plans were the toast, you know, like you open an account at the bank, you got a toaster. If you went yes. to a brokerage and did you know, commissionable business, you got the toaster equivalent of financial plan. The financial planning toaster. I like yes. that. <laughs> yes. And I liked Greg. I liked his philosophy. I liked his approach. I liked his department. There were a couple of women there that were doing some interesting work. One accountant and another woman who was head of financial planning. And it was probably within two weeks, I could see the writing on the wall. I could see that... Greg was going to leave. It was very apparent to me. Um, he didn't say anything, but I could just see that he was not happy being this captive little overhead department. You know, they weren't generating any revenue. They were just right. kind of Five. the icing on the cake, really. Right. The problem with the financial planning toaster model is the entire financial planning division is a overhead expense item for the company and gets managed that way rather than being a, an, a a positive revenue generator and driver of the firm. Well, and I think the breaking point is that there was a very, very large client that the whole firm was wrapped around and Greg was sent in as the, you know, the advisor who could talk about client's life and goals and all that stuff. But he was supposed to be selling him one of the many limited partnerships that were on the shelf, and he refused. So that I could see the but that'll, that'll kind of end your job pretty quickly if you hadn't quit already. <laughs> Re refusing, refusing to sell the company's core product to the company's largest client. That, That's right. That's that, right. That would, so, that would probably transition you pretty quickly. Yes. So I was sitting here, oh, okay, now what am I going to do? Well, lo and behold, he went out on his own and took – his staff with him, basically, paid us a salary, and I don't know what he lived on. I guess a, another home loan or, or an equity, equity on his home credit. or something. I don't know, but yeah. we decided he wanted to do financial planning, and he wanted to incorporate investment management. And this was investment management for a fee. Now, and, back and what, then, and what, year, what year are we in now? We're in about 86 or 7. Okay. 87. So the whole world, at like 
half the investment people are still stockbrokers in the classic sense, like literally selling stocks from inventory. The advanced, in air quotes, the advanced advisors are now selling mutual funds instead of stockbrokering. And that's what, yeah. And you're pushing towards getting paid a fee for investment management. Yes. And I mean, we were laughed at and scorned and you're going to starve to death because this was the day it's of 8% mutual funds. I was going to say, you're walking away from 8% upfront commissions to to 1%. So you know, yep. good job, guys. In eight years, you'll make your money back. Good we heard that over and over again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> have, have lots of luck with that. Yep. <laughs> we heard. And we grew. And we grew. Now, I will tell you a major feature, a major pillar within our practice was tax preparation. Greg was a CPA. Jim was a CPA. Jim hadn't joined yet. But we we really got a perch with our clients because we did the taxes. That was, they, Financial planning, they didn't quite get. The investment management, they didn't quite get. But they knew they needed an accountant. And so it put those clients in front of us at least once a year, and it gave us such insight as to their financial resources and their, you know, their investment behavior, all sorts of things. I've often said if I, I can only get one document from a prospective client, give me the tax return, and I can pretty well see what's going on. So, like, were all of you CPA? Was Greg a CPA? Were you a CPA? Greg was a, no, I was not a CPA. I was not. Later on in my career, I had a brief stint as an enrolled agent, but I, I didn't maintain that designation. But was, I always, was I've, Greg a CPA? I mean, were you hiring yes. and building, like, the whole firm around CPA financial planners, basically? No, we were not. Well, he had one other CPA and then two of us were I was the sort of I was the investment person. I was the one that was going to de- design this new investment management. We called it portfolio management for our clients. And Schwab, we just we were probably one of the first very first firms to sign on with Schwab as a custodian. It was called Schwab Institutional or whatever it was called back then. And I used to, uh, every night, I would leave the office and go down Leesburg Pike to the Schwab office and turn in the applications for new accounts that we had opened that day. All paper. Well, yeah, I think I, I, think I remember looking back at this recently. That original Schwab Financial Advisor Service started like right around 1987, I think. Yeah. So we were one of the you know, the first adopters. And I will tell you that was a major factor in our growth. We worked very well with Schwab. They were very supportive. And to this day, I think their major SBSB now is probably one of their largest clients in the mid-Atlantic region. So Greg broke away from his broker-dealer. He took you and a lot of this department with him. So when the firm started, like it was Greg's firm and you were an employee or were you a, no, a I was partner em- with him from the start? What did that look like? No, I was I was an employee. Okay. I was so paid. What- Not a lot, but I was paid. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that path for you as the as the firm grew? Because you ultimately became a principal. You ultimately had your name on the door, as it were. So what did that path look like? How did that unfold? Well, we grew the firm for a couple of years and then 
you know, I can't remember, but in conversations with Jim Bruett and Pete Spiros, we began to think about a partnership. And Jim and so how, Greg how did Jim had been- and Pete come to the table into this conversation? Were they employees at that point or they were just friends of the No, firm? they when we decided to join ranks, we created ownership and we of Honestly, I'm not I don't know whether I had ownership right away. I don't think I did. I think it was the three men because it started out as Sullivan, Brett and Spiros. And then pretty shortly thereafter, I was given a stake in the firm as well. Okay, and it became Sullivan, Brett, Spiros and Blaney or now abbreviated down to SBSB. Correct. Yes. So what was that like as a the one woman in a partnership of men. <laughs> and I feel like that's a challenge I hear from a number of women I know that are looking at paths to, well, e- even paths to ownership about whether male-dominated firms will really allow female owners to become owners, and then what those partnership dynamics are like across gender lines. Well, I think I hit it lucky. I don't think this is the experience of many women in the profession, I will say. So I can't give you the, you know, keys to my success. I mean, I was lucky to find three partners who were, I guess they appreciated that I was smart and I was good with clients and therefore they took me on. And this is extraordinary. This was the risk. I did not bring any book of business to the firm. When the four of you kind of came together into this entity. Yes. I mean, I supported Greg's book of business, but I did not bring a book of business. And they still gave me a share and a management part in the firm. Greg then went off to become the president of the IAFP at one point and was doing a lot of traveling. And it was during those that year and subsequent years that I began to take over clients as well as begin to acquire clients of my own. So that, that is was extraordinary. Actually, that was a couple of years into your yes, uh, your our partnership. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I feel like that's at least a little bit unusual. I guess both today, Apt. even and certainly then, to be in a I guess we'll call it a a non-producing capacity as an initially becoming a partner in that role. I would say absolutely. So I was given a real chance and. What were your duties at that time? So you've said at some points you were you were supporting Greg's clients. There was some management work. There was this portfolio management process that you were driving. Like, what did your working world look like at the time as as you're going through this growth phase? Well, just as you described, I mean, we were trying to adapting new technology for the portfolio management. I'm almost embarrassed to say, but when we began, we were tracking investments through Excel on spreadsheets and then not Lotus one, two, three or Quattro Pro? <laughs> no, not quite that bad, but Excel, I believe. And maybe it was Lotus one, two, three. I don't know, but it was spreadsheet. And you know, when every dividend was uh, paid and reinvested, I mean, you can imagine the yes. tedium and the, it was just a nightmare. So we started looking into portfolio management software that was down, you know, that we're Transactions would be downloaded to our system and went with Advent at that point and remained. So my job was to, you know, learn the the new software, provide investment ideas and advice, 
you know, to the firm. You didn't exactly have a lot of choices even at the time, did you? I mean, well, we were primarily working with mutual funds. We were we were working with no load mutual funds, and of course, the Schwab platform made that very feasible. Because Schwab was at that time an organization that was very, you know, they really held on to their roots as a discount broker. But Chuck Schwab, I mean, his philosophy, he would not sell certain kinds of products if he didn't feel that they could be used well or well understood by the consumer. And so it's a very squeaky clean, low cost type of product offering. So what did the growth trajectory of the firm look like? Like, Can you talk to us a little bit about milestones? So you, you got started in, I guess, 87, 88. So like, what did that look like after, after five years and after 10 years? Oh, let's see. I'm not sure. I'll never, every Christmas, every holiday, we would have a party and we would all write poems. Uh, the younger staff didn't like that, but we, we had great fun with it. And I'll never forget writing a poem about when we went over a hundred thousand <laughs> assets under management. I mean, that's a hundred million. No, 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 no. A hundred thousand. A hundred thousand. Yes. Okay. So things got started slowly. <laughs> Very slowly, but that seemed like a huge, you know, because we were, maybe it was, you know, maybe I'll revise that. Was it a million? I don't know. It was a, it was a small number, no matter yeah. what it was. But I remember feeling that was a real milestone. And, well, when, you, when you're gathering your $2,000 IRA contributions at the time. Well, yeah, we, I think if, we, if we, people we could were, afford to save the maximum. Exactly. Exactly. So. I remember that being a great milestone. I think by the time we sold in 2003, we were, I think, shy, a little bit shy of a billion under management. Which was a huge number at at the time. I mean, I still remember, I was actually looking back recently at some of the quote-unquote early benchmarking studies that Moss Adams was doing back in the early 2000s, and the median... Independent RAA in the early 2000s had $20 million under management. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. And you were closing in on a billion. That's right. It's like Mm -hmm. that's uh, (laughs) some astounding growth. So where did clients come from? Was it it all this doing tax preparation work initially and then turning them into financial planning and investment management clients later? Did that continue to be how you built the business or did you ultimately go in – different directions for marketing and business development? Well, we were at the right place at the right time. There were several factors that I think drove our growth. Number one, we started working with the with Microsoft, both out in Seattle as well as the there was an office here in D.C. for government relations and so forth. And Microsoft was growing you know, tremendously during those years. And the major form of compensation to the executives were was stock options. And oh, so these both young wealth tech- creating and oh. highly and highly tax complex, right? This was Ex- the days of yep. big incentive stock options and AMT adjustments. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, we would talk, I mean, one of our one of our clients was probably in his twenties and he came in and had Student debt, and you know, he thought that 
he assumed he had negative net worth, but we could see <laughs> we could see the gold in them dar hills, and <laughs> I mean he had these these stock options. You know, a, a, a negative a negative net worth and a hundred thousand stock options on well, Microsoft it, in the nineties. <laughs> and actually, you know, the first round of stock options that Microsoft awarded, and they awarded them, I think, to every. You heard about you know the cubicle millionaires. They awarded to everybody, and those split and split and split and split and split. I mean, finally, the exercise price was, you know, in the pennies for this stock, and it was huge. And so we worked, we were good at it, and we were good at planning, and we were good at helping people advise them when to exercise, to divest. And, and you know, it took a lot of work, and it was we'd done out over time. We kept good track of, you know, their portfolio of stock options and the impacts and the tax impacts. And then we did the same thing with AOL executives. That was another major. Oh, of course, because here in the, you know, the DC area, area AOL right. had the major headquarters in kind of rest in Herndon, Virginia area, which I know is all of about five or 10 miles from your office. So a lot of the business really got built in, I guess, basically like a, a niche around the DC tech industry and all of the tax related stock options activity that was happening at the time is that like a fair characterization of how it unfolded? Yes, it did. And Freddie Mac, we worked with, and also a number of law firms downtown. And again, working with attorneys, that's always a tax issue because they're paying very high taxes and their cash flow is so irregular. <laughs> they never seem to have the money they need to to make the estimate. I mean, they're making yes. a, a huge amount of money, huge, but it was just huge money, but extremely uneven. Uneven, yes, and you know, obviously they needed planning and they needed management. So that was a niche for us as well. We were very, very lucky. I mean, since that time, big corporations have ceased awarding stock options to right to it's employees. Much more- Restricted stock or much or more, other yeah, it's more likely to be restricted or whatever. But that was a major, you know, leverage for our growth. So, so you had this explosive growth of almost a billion dollars in about fifteen years from the late eighties to the to the early two thousands, and then you sold. What led to uh, the decision to engage in a sale to a a bank? So you were bought by, I guess, Harris. Bank of Montreal, Harris BMO. What Harris led Private to the- Bank, yes. So well, I think there division. were a number of things, but from my perspective, probably the most important was there were four of us, and we had a lot, you know, our investment in our company was worth a lot at that point. And one impetus for selling, it was a form of risk reduction. So a, a means to take money off the table for those of yes. you that were owners in. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, we can kind of do the math. Yeah. Yeah. You a can billion do the dollar math. firm is a ten million dollar revenue stream, give or take a little, and you know, kind of classic two x revenue multiples. Well, There's this, you know. Yeah. I mean, and 20, you know, you can be million dollar asset that's concentrated business risk. <laughs> very concentrated business risk, and I think how I can describe that best is. I would come in in the morning and come through my the sitting room or the open area on my way to my office. And for many years, I 
and my partners, we knew every person that was there. You know, we had a good relationship. So you really had a sense of who you were working with. But there was, as we grew, it was becoming more and more we didn't. I would come in through the, the waiting room and not know some of these people, and the same with our partners. And suddenly you realize that you don't have your hands on every relationship. And, you know, we were, we were creating opportunities for other employees to come up through the ranks. And it was just, you just realized that you were, could be one major lawsuit away from fairly big financial disaster. So as I say, it was risk reduction. I think too, there was the opportunity. First of all, banks had money. They could come, come shopping with, you know, bags of cash as opposed to earn out and that kind of stuff. So you could get get appealing deal terms. <laughs> get appealing deal terms. They were looking to get into the wealth management business. I can't say that that happened successfully. But at the time, they saw that that was the future of, you know, the kinds of relationships they wanted to create with their clients, they wanted, as they kept calling it, more share of wallet. <laughs> so, right. so they, f- they saw the a potential. Wealth management, a wealth management label, but unfortunately kind of a classic yes. you know, banking product distribution label, right? Like wallet share is the old classic. If the consumer has a bunch of dollars in their wallet, I want to have products that use up as many of the dollars in their wallet as possible so get more wallet share. Right. And, you know, in all fairness, that was what we did as well. I mean, we often found that our growth was coming from additional deposits and additional accounts that were being moved over to our supervision and to our advisory umbrella. So you were you were at least validating there actually is expanding wallet share potential, even if that wasn't the well, yeah, o- because over, people, over, you know, intention per se. Yes, I mean, you know, oftentimes people came and I used to hate this. They would put us in a horse race. Well, I'm working with the folks down the block and working with you, and I'm going to see who does the better job. And of course, that better job was always measured in basis points and not in the quality of the advice of the relationship. And I never liked those relationships, you know, where you were kind of, you know, because if you were taking a more of a growth stature and somebody was taking more balanced, I mean, it just was a, you know, crapshoot as to who was going to do better. Yeah, I think all of us have <laughs> have lived versions of that and getting put in horse races that we don't really want to be in. No, and I think, you know, that's one of the submerged icebergs that I want to talk about a little bit is, you know, finding that middle ground where you are pleasing clients, but also doing the right thing. And I think it's very hard for people. And it was certainly hard for me as a new entrant. You know, you're feeling brand spanking new with your new CFP or whatever. And you're beginning to, you know, you're dealing with back then, believe it or not, there are clients older than me, not anymore, but you know, they, they're they difficult. They're full of behavioral finance heuristic uh, yes. <laughs> flaws. All those, all those great things that we've studied all now. All those and things. Prove, and you try, but, you're yeah. trying to do the right thing, but you also have this, as I've often said, you know, if somebody doesn't accept a recommendation, it can be the best recommendation in the world, but it's not going to help them. It's not going to help them. And I'm also thinking back to the days when we were all using optimizers where you'd 
had this algorithm and could figure out, you know, these optimal portfolios. Well, it was pretty much rubbish if you think about it. But you know, I I used to mean variance optimizer to determine that your optimal equity allocation isn't just sixty percent; it's sixty one point two three seven percent. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, you'd get answers like you really should have, you know, sixty percent in gold and the rest in real estate because they were totally uncorrelated. <laughs> so finding finding your your advisory confidence and backbone, while also being compassionate and understanding how people work. I think that takes a lot of time. Do we train that somewhere? Is that just you do it enough times and you go through it with enough clients and eventually we all collectively start figuring out how to, you know, when to push a client to say, you're not doing this, but you really need to do it. And I know you don't want to hear the message from me, but you really need to do it. I think like so. Just finding some, that balance. You know, sometimes it takes some colossal failures for you to find your, you know, true north, as it were. For example, you can make, you know, a really bad mistake. I remember a client insisting he was just furious that he didn't have, you know, high tech. And I caved in and we bought a high tech fund. And this was, you know, what, 2002? When was the. Meltdown of all the E. Meltdown meltdown started in 2000. So Somewhere around there. So a client was asking in March of 2000 or something. And I did it. And of course, it was a disaster. And the relationship was never, never right after that. Because I caved in because I was tired of arguing with him or tired of offering a countering point of view. So, you know, I learned my lesson. And did he even blame you for it? I know I've seen that with at least... A few clients over the years, you know, they they push an issue and we keep saying no. And if you ever cave in and say yes, and then it goes poorly, you still get blamed because like, well, why didn't blamed. you? Why didn't you stop me? Right. <laughs> like, well, I- so you know, I learned that. I've also learned that there are times you have to fire clients, and that's hard. So what, I want to share would, something what would that drive I find you to what would drive you to fire a client? Well, when it was just draining, you know, it was not a productive relationship, and. You were being questioned. Their trust wasn't there. The ability to get things done. You were being blocked in a number of ways. They were very difficult to work with. I tried something because I think another part of the story is learning how to manage others. And that is really diff- That can be really difficult. And I think particularly for me as a woman, and I'm not going to generalize to all women, but, you know, we like to be liked. <laughs> I like to be like, excuse me. And, you know, I, think I most would of get us do. I'm, I'm good with that too. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to be, you know, understanding and likable or whatever. And, but, you know, there are times where you have to set the agenda. And I think probably the most important thing is defining expectations for people. And that can be hard because it sounds like you're requiring, you know, you're demanding something of them. But I think it's actually a boon to make the expectations very, very clear. And I had to work very hard at that. But one thing I did that I found really important as we were growing and, you know, growth creates stress, particularly on your back office staff or your support team. And they're often the ones who take the phone calls of like, why did my check not arrive on time? You know, that kind of stuff. 
So I took my team at one point and we tried an exercise and it was really helpful. Everyone who was responsible for revenue coming in, in other words, they part of the revenue generating side of things, had to rank our clients. I think, I can't remember exactly, but let's just say one to five with one being low revenue or low potential, low referral capability up to five, which was, you know, high revenue, high potential, and so forth. So you were really looking at the, you know, not the profitability, but the revenue generation. And we all on that, anybody who dealt with that, who was responsible for the client and bringing the money in, got to rank the client on that scale. The staff, on the other hand, they were also given a ranking. And again, it was one to five, and I called it the hassle factor. How difficult is it to deal with this client? Because sometimes, you know, you had staff, I'm sure you've had staff, Michael, come in, they're crying, they're so upset because they've been, you know, mistreated or harassed or whatever, or they're constantly demanding things and so forth. So we had two numbers and we put the revenue potential generation in the numerator and the hassle factor in the denominator and it completely rearranged our priorities as to who was the best client. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned that. My, I think I should say that we put, you would have to reverse it. So my staff, like if it was a really super easy person to work with, you'd put a one and go the other way. But um, the, So you can see that are, you could have- the score, so you yeah. start getting these ratios that when you score low and you got a bad ratio, low revenue and- and high hassle, your days are numbered with Yeah, and so, you know, you reset your priorities for how many times you're going to meet with that person or when you turn them away or so forth. But the major, one of the biggest benefits that came out of that exercise is your staff are now, they get input into who they want to work with or at least shaping the practice. And I think that is so important because at the end of the day, clients are all, you know, are wonderful and <laughs> we live by our clients. But if you're not making, you know, you're not recognizing the needs and the, you know, the assaults on your staff, you can be in real trouble. Well, you know, I remember early in my career, the the second firm I worked at was kind of a smaller independent firm with a couple of advisors under an independent broker-dealer, and I'd, I had joined them at what I guess now we would basically call a combination of a paraplanner and a, and a, and a client service associate. And we had this similar a- annual process where clients got basically scored on a couple of dimensions. You know, We looked at ongoing revenue and upfront revenue because this was a fee and commission firm. So so we would have a blend of each. And then all of us as staff got a a scoring factor that we controlled that at that firm, we actually called the PETA factor for pain PETA in factor. the ass. <laughs> and and we got to assign all the clients a PETA score. And we got to pick three of the clients that had the worst PETA scores and fire them. Yep. Uh, well, actually, I- the, the advisor had to fire them. But we we as staff got to pick three clients that got fired every year. And, you know, it was a, it was a sizable firm. So fortunately, uh, firing three clients was not going to, not going to blow up the business, but, uh, we, we basically had pretty much unlimited control around who we would get to fire under kind of the presumption that 
no matter how good of a client it is, and, and some of them weren't even that valuable financially either. You know, there's an instant lift that comes from the morale, uh, uh-huh. yeah, the morale of the staff. I mean, I like I remember being in that position. It was it was really empowering. I mean, including even you know, I remember one year like dealing with a particularly challenging client throughout the year, and and thinking through most of that fall. I know what you don't. I know you're going to be gone at the end of this year. I'm going to still be here, and you're not going to be a client here anymore. And, and frankly, that was that was empowering as a staff member to get through some some challenging times with a very rude, unpleasant client, knowing that like we were empowered enough that I was not going to have to deal with this client next year. And, yes, and that helped to keep me on board as an employee. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that that was a lesson I I learned and used absolutely. And I know there, you know, several of the people I really admire, some of the people I most admire in this industry have shared with me that if a client in any way abuses a staff person, you know, reams them out on the phone or in person or appudes them or whatever, no tolerance, no tolerance for that. I've ended out with the same attitude as well, having lived through that now, being on kind of the other end of the business owner side, the, the long run. I mean, just even wearing a business owner hat, the, the long run value of our employees and the dozens or hundreds of clients that they touch is so astronomically higher than the value of any one client. That, I mean, just from the pure business sense, rather, my, never mind that us this think it's a good thing to do as a human being, that I have no tolerance for clients or customers that are rude or offensive to staff. I mean, being upset is fine. Like people get upset and you can voice a little frustration if you're upset, but like mean, nasty people like will fire them or let them go in a heartbeat. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it. Right. So you build up to this firm that's at nearly a billion dollars and it gets sold in 2003. So what then? Like, was this like Sell the firm, drop the mic, walk off into the sunset, and just <laughs> vanish. Did you no, continue I stayed, after no, no. being after the firm was acquired? Like, what did that transition look like? No, I stayed on for another four years to make sure that the clientele was, you know, clients were stable and there was continuity and so forth. And I think that I was during that time, I mean, I was enjoying what I was doing, but I have to say I was beginning to yearn for something else. And, you know, I had the ability to, the financial wherewithal to, at that point, to consider other options. And I really got interested in women, in looking at the experience of women in terms of their financial planning and considering how is it different? Is it different? Are their needs different? Are their ways of thinking about money different? Are we reaching them where they're at? And I really felt that as a profession, not so much my firm, but as a profession, we were not doing a good job. And I could see as many people saw either simultaneously or certainly subsequently that the women's market was a huge potential for growth. I think in a recent Center for Talent Innovation came out with a study not long ago and, and estimated that there's about $5 trillion that is being held by women that is unadvised. And most of it's in cash. 
that's just, it's huge. It's huge. And so there is some reluctance. There's something going on with women and financial advisors. And I felt we as a profession are not doing it. We're not meeting them. We're not gaining their trust. They're not seeking us out. And I wanted to think about this. I wanted to look at every research study I could about, you know, women's preferences and so forth and begin to think about it. I think, too, that I had grown out of the portfolio management role. You know, I could see that it was more and more something that could be done. I mean, I could maybe see down the road that this was possibly the least important part of the overall advisory package, given that we were doing a lot of... You had yeah. an early premonition you were going to be replaced by robo-advisors before robo-advisors <laughs> came to re- replace you. <laughs> no, you know what? I believed then, I guess I can share this. I, I can hear people screaming in the background when I share this, but I really believed that, you know, you could do a great job with index funds and you didn't need to know anything. You need to know very little and you could pick good, solid mutual funds. I used Vanguard funds for myself and for, you know, relatives that I know I have to have Thanksgiving dinner with every year. I mean, another, they're just so, it just works. It works. And what are you going to do with the, (laughs) yeah, what are you going to do with the other 90% of your time? (laughs) And I really felt that we were, that the real value added, yes, was making, you know, We added a lot of value, for instance, when somebody came to us all in cash because we could get them the diversification that they needed. We added a lot of value preventing big mistakes. And that I don't want to underestimate that because people we know from the Dalbar, I think it's the Dalbar studies that people left to their own devices will underperform indexes. Now, that's a computer. It's not even a mind that's choosing those stocks underperforms that by a significant amount. So our job was simply, I felt, to keep people in the game, keep it growing, determine, you know, how to get to their retirement goals. But I didn't see the investing and the choosing of investments to be all that interesting anymore. So you wound out of SBSB in 2007, Four yeah, right? two thousand eight and years I, after. Okay. Oh, so you got was, at a good time. That well, was. that's what you say, and that's what I half of my mind said. Whew! I dodged that bullet, but the other half of me, I just, I sat at home and I worried about every single one of my clients. You know, after I left, thinking, oh, but so they you, need me. They need you, me. <laughs> you left just in time to not actually be there for no. clients that went and, through that decline. And I had a lot of survivor guilt as a result. Of so that. how do you, I'm curious, I mean, how do you work through that? How do you, what do you do to go through that challenge? I think that's true for, I mean, pretty much any any advisor that's sold the firm or frankly, even just transitioned clients. I mean, you can be still in the firm at some point as we grow, you delegate clients to other advisors in the firm and you know, that's fine when everything's happy, but then you get to stressful parts and that feeling kicks in. No one can help this client but me because I, I brought him and I did it in the first well, place. Like, how do you work through that? 
Well, I think, first of all, I just had to recognize the hubris of, of assuming that <laughs> they needed me. I was leaving them in a process and with a staff and with a firm that I had built that I really trusted. And I knew that they would be cared for. I mean, it, that was all part of the plan. So, you know, I missed them probably more than they needed to miss me. And the transition was smooth. It was comfortable. And certainly my leaving didn't dent the growth of the firm. <laughs> so it was the right time. It was the right time for me. So what came next? You you spent 20 years, almost exactly, I guess, building the firm, growing the firm, and then suddenly you drop your mic and walk away and <laughs> no more client calls? No. And I mean, then, and, and I, then, you know, and I what? had a few restrictions on what I could do very short. It wasn't a big deal. But, okay. no, I, but wanted yeah, to, some, I wanted to- A reasonable to, non-compete. Yeah. Right. And I wanted to sit back and think about- women and what they needed and how we as a profession needed to address their needs because of this distrust. I remember a major impetus was a study that was released, what's the big consulting firm in Boston? BCG? Yes, that's right. Boston Consulting Group. I said it. They published a study about women want more. This was back in 2008. And what they did, they did a global study and they asked women all over the world, it wasn't just in the United States, but all over the world, they asked them about all the major industrial sectors and wanted their opinion as to how well these sectors were <laughs> meeting their needs, addressing their, you know, treating them and so forth. You know, so there was retail, there was travel, there was medical, fashion, I mean, you name it. And I think there were 30, 32 sectors. And guess which one came? Absolute dead bottom was financial oh, services. financial services. Yes. And I thought, this has got to change. So that was when I wrote my book, Women's Worth, Finding Your Financial Confidence. But I knew it was as much women needed changing as we needed changing as a profession. So I began to explore more and more, did a lot of speaking to women's groups, talking to them, trying to understand what women want. Me and Freud, we were wondering, what do women really want? <laughs> you know, learned a lot along the way. I partnered with Elizabeth Jatan for quite some time, and we were we created an organization called Directions for Women, and we started out working with advisors to help them think about their approach to women clients. Interestingly enough, along the way, we found that in working with the advisors, that they were primarily women advisors, a lot of their needs and questions and insecurities were absolutely the same as their as clients, as women clients. So we began offering so circle retreats. Parallels between women advisors and women clients. Yes. Uh -huh. okay. We're very similar. And so we started these retreats for women advisors, and we were teaching them ostensibly how to hold circle, women's circles to talk about financial issues. But it really worked as an exercise for the advisors themselves to begin to 
you know, peel the layers of the onion and really see what was holding them back, what they were, you know, fighting within a a male-dominated culture. It wasn't male bashing by any means. It was just a very open space where we could talk about what we were trying to do as women advisors. Are there takeaways that you learned from that that you'd share out to, I guess, either women advisors to the podcast or, or maybe even a few of us male advisors that want some perspective on how it's different from the other side of the gender divide? Well, I think, you know, there, there were several things, and I, but I can speak from personal experience in terms of so often, you know, being a woman in a male-dominated profession, you're plagued with insecurity. And even if you are smart and, you know, a great communicator, a great planner, whatever, you are constantly feeling second guess, you know, that you're being, you're being kind of shadowed or it's just difficult. And we always feel that we don't know enough. We always feel we don't know enough. And in this, this is a factor that exists for women investors, for women clients and for women advisors. And we feel driven to be, you know, to do and be much more than we even need to do. So I think coming to that realization with other women, be it in a client group or be in a network of other women advisors, I really believe in the support that we get from each other. And I would tell your listeners, those women out there who are trying to find their way in the profession, surround yourself with people, with other professionals like yourself. Does that mean specifically women's groups? Like women, you try to organize local women advisor groups to to share these dynamics or can that be anyone? Well, I know this, this is going to be maybe unpopular to some, I understand, but I, yes, yes, yes. Yes, meaning women, women, specifically women advisor groups. Yes, because I will tell you, I've been in in (laughs) both types of groups. Both are extremely valuable. I'm not saying, you know, to the the exclusion of other professional learning, you know, study groups. We're not saying like never have a study group if it hasn't. No, no, no. Okay. but. But the quality of conversation and the honesty and the authenticity in an all women's group is extraordinary. There you get. Topics that you're talking about that are not talked about in, you know, with men and women. So there's a digging deeper and more sharing and more support. And I can't, you know, you have to experience it to really understand it. So for any women out there, I guess, who are feeling isolated in this, you know, find some other women in your area and band together and... Do you just what do we talk about? Every, well, or I mean, even how do you organize? Like everybody come to my office. We're just going to kind of sit around the conference table and start chit chatting. Like, I mean, do you would you make these more social? Do these like everyone come to my office in the conference room? I mean, how would someone set this up? Well, you can set it up any way you want. I mean, I belong to a women's study group for years and years and years, and we just you know we get together and talk about oh. 
Roth IRAs and the, you know, the, what is it, the Medicare surtax and all of the, I mean, you know, we talk about the sort of tactical things, but still, there's also a lot of talk about, well, you know, how do I deal with this individual in my firm or how do I deal with this client? So there's a kind of, you know, exchange as well about the softer side. I just think that women feel very, they don't feel judged by other women. There's a more collaborative share than it is in a mixed group. So consider it, you know, more in the terms of practice management types of things, which aren't necessarily, you know, all about, you know, finding alpha or, or the more technical parts of what we do. But how do I develop as a professional? Where do I find the resources that I need? Who can I talk to? So I've got to ask then in in this context about both unique we, we needs of women as advisors, unique we needs of women as clients, the unique perspectives that women bring to the table or the, the unique challenges that they face. So are, are you in the camp that as advisors looking at clients, are women a niche? Is 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 women a niche? Is that even proper English? Are are women a niche for financial advisors to serve and specialize in? Or is I, that well, not a good I way think- to look at it? I wouldn't say women are a niche because you're talking about more than half the world. That's no right, niche. right. My niche is fifty one percent of the population. But I, well, you know, no, no, but when no, when, I think- when like ninety eight percent of advisors serve the other side, I guess maybe that is you could still have a niche that's a majority when the majority of advisors serve the minority. There are niches among women. For example, I know many women who have created excellent growing practices working with divorcees. And that is one area where I know that generally so far we have not measured a preference on the part of women clients for women advisors, but I have also argued that for a long time they really didn't have much of a choice. (laughs) I'm of the school that if we get more women into the profession, I believe that the demand for women advisors will go up. But that's another conversation. That's another whole chapter. So, but there are, I mean, for some reason, it doesn't make sense to me to make a niche of male divorcees. I think you could get that, don't you? Can you see somebody creating a practice of men who have been divorced? It doesn't feel exactly the same. Yeah, it doesn't feel the no, same. Yeah. It doesn't feel the same. And so the need is both, you know, for getting things organized and the financial choices that have to be made and talking her out of just keeping the house and being, you know, having no liquidity whatsoever and all of that. That is a real need out there that collects around women that just is not true of men. Then we also talk about widows. That is a niche. And let's face it, there's just a lot more widows than there are widowers. Yes. Okay. Yes. Un- unfortunately, that's just a so demographic or I guess a it, life expectancy reality. Right. So I think that that works as a niche. That's not to say that, you know, they're all going to be temperamentally the same, but in many cases, just that shared experience is very binding, I think. And when it is some of the best women in the field have been those who have gone through something and turn around and become experts in it. I've seen women who've gone through divorces and they now have thriving practices around counseling newly divorced women. I have seen widows, Catherine Rell down in 
Florida who has thrived in advising widows based on her own experience. And I think that this is a very strong trend for women to come through experience and want to turn around and help others go through it, go through the same Well, and Catherine Rell in particular, I believe she actually speaks and trains advisors on Uh, how to do this as well. And I mean, so we'll make sure we get a a link to that in the show note uh, for people that want to look that up. Absolutely. So, you know, there are niches in here that don't necessarily stand forth among the male population. I think that's more, maybe they're all cats. I don't know. It's hard to herd them or something (laughs) into, (laughs) into such neat groups. Although, you know, certainly there are male business owners or, you know, entrepreneurs. But I think another niche is, in fact, women business owners. I think they yeah, have I know different- a couple of advisors thriving there, or even particular industries, right? I know a few advisors out there that just specialize in women in tech, which is a, another challenging space with problematic gender diversity. Well, you know, and I think, I mean, I think this reflects a kind of, you know, there's gender imbalance all across just about everything we do. I mean, certainly women have, men have led and women have followed. And I think it does set up the opportunity to bring the emotional relating and the to the financial situation that works very well with women. Because I think women can feel very isolated by their situation where men have, have oh, I'm going to be in such trouble with all these generalizations, I know. But nevertheless, you know, men have historically and culturally found it easier to create the networks and the connections in the marketplace. And I don't think women have. So as we get into the tail end here of our discussion today, I'm curious if you look back at your career as 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 an advisor, as a as a firm owner, you know, is is there like a particular crossroads or a decision where you feel like there's one thing that I just I got right, I nailed that really contributed to the to the business success or to your career success? Yes, I do. Very early in my career, I was encouraged to stand up and talk. <laughs> I was pushed out there. And I will tell was you that a, a person that did that? A a mentor, a friend? Yes, it was a mentor. And I will be honest, and I'll admit to your audience, I was terrified of public speaking when I began my career. Just terrified. <laughs> and I think, I think a lot of people actually are actually. I'm, I'm well, not yeah, sure it's that's very a, common. That's a gender gender dynamic, but, but yeah, a lot idea, of us very very scared of very public scared. And I sat myself down and said, "I can't be scared. You know, I, this has got to go." <laughs> This has got to go because I can't get to where I want to go if I refuse to stand up and speak. And I started speaking, and I started speaking at conferences and events, and I started teaching audio courses for the College of Financial Planning. I did a lot of writing, and so now how do, you, my- how do you get started with that? Like just you just I put mean, like one, someone that wants one foot in front someone- of another. 
Well, I did go She's to like, I did go, go to Toastmasters. Is that is that a start that helped me? Sure. <laughs> well, I, I mean, how do you? I think there's a challenge for some people. Just how do you get started? So, so join Toastmasters and just find any local group of any size that has an audience more than one. So it's not a conversation now; it's an actual speech in front of an audience, and just do it. Well, I did. Now I had some help along the way because I was sort of pushed onto the stage to talk about. Because we were fairly new at this development of a portfolio management practice, and I was so integral to that, I really got pushed at the IAFP conventions and so forth to get up on the stage and start talking. And it was terrifying. And I got very mixed reactions. And I really sensed in in many cases that the predominantly male audiences were not entirely comfortable or ready to accept expertise from a woman. That was so hard. from the flip side, then looking back, is there any crossroads moment you got to where you really wish you'd done it differently? You know, like kind of a career regret. Hey, anyone listening, if you hit this moment, don't do what I did here. Oh, I have failed many times. There's no question about that. And actually, I'm going to turn it around a little bit. I want to encourage again women to get good at failing. I think too often we avoid it. You know, we keep it safe to avoid failing, but we miss out a lot. And I think there's a wonderful book called the, I think it's called The Confidence Code. Confidence Code? I okay. believe we'll, so. Uh, that we'll make sure that's fact listed checked. in the show notes with this episode. Okay. <laughs> but it's by two women. I think it's Claire Shipman and Caddy Kay, I believe. It is a wonderful book about women's lack of confidence. It's one of the reasons I na- you know, I subtitled my book Finding Your Financial Confidence because I think this is very much a female trait, a female characteristic. We may evolve out of it. I mean, and we will. But right now we're at a cultural and a historical place where we still, you know, feel less confident about what we know. So as you look back over the span of Working as an advisor and building a business, and you now you're doing work with CFP board as a consumer advocate and part of their women's initiative. So how do you define success? Oh, I guess I could be really corny and saying, you know, loving what you do or not working a day in your life. <laughs> or if you, love okay. what you do, I mean, if you love what you do, you if you if you love what you do, it's not work. It's yeah. not, you know, you'll never have to work a day in your life or something like that. I mean, I, I mean, is that I what it think, feels like for you at this point? Well, success feels like integrity. And I, I'm, when I say integrity, I mean it in the sort of old derivation of wholeness, you know, integral. When your insides match your outsides, when what you're doing is what you believe and it fits well, you're wearing your expertise like a, you know, a loose robe. It just works. And I think it's knowing, you know, I thought about retiring many times and I just can't get there because what I am- What would you do with all that time? Well, <laughs> I'm going to continue to work for empowering professional women probably until I can't anymore, however that is. And it may be pro bono or whatever. I mean, it's just something that I really care about and get tremendous satisfaction when someone comes up to me and says, thank you. You know, thank you for reaching out. Thank you for setting an example. 
Thanks for encouraging women. The need is huge. And so success is doing something that counts. Let's roll back to the very beginning. I didn't like what I was doing when I came out of business school because I couldn't make eye contact. I couldn't see into somebody and get that response. And success is now, I'm now at a place where I have so many connections and relationships that are maybe very, very brief, but they're deeply felt. And I can meet their eyes. That to me is just tremendously powerful. So one final question then is, as we wrap up, what advice would you give young advisors looking to become a, a financial planner today and, and start a firm? And I guess anything you'd say in particular to young women maybe looking to navigate that path? Oh, I have so much to say. But I think, you know, don't be discouraged by business models or whatever. There are people out there that are doing some amazingly innovative, creative things. You do not have to you do not have to work for a job. You can make your career work for you. And I think that's going to be the wave of financial planning going forward as millennials get a hold of our profession and they connect and create and innovate. I think we can, you know, create practices that fully reflect ourselves. I think there's tremendous freedom and potential there. Obviously, you have to do the groundwork, the blocking and tackling. You have to know your stuff. But then you can. The need for financial planning, the need for somebody, a client or an individual can trust is so huge. There's such potential. So you can find your way, find where you need to be, and go for it. And if you fail, that's okay. You're going to learn from it. Just pick yourself up and do it again. I don't think we can finish on any better note than that. So thank you. Thank you, Eleanor, for for joining us and, and sharing your success story. Well, it was my pleasure and can't be talking to anybody more successful than you, Michael. So I'm honored to have been asked to do this. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.